Please sit comfortably. So, good morning, everyone. Third day of session. Uh, to give this talk a title today Bells and Blowflies. Bells and Blowflies make up the, the experience of session. <laughs> I was sitting the other day and I heard the bells from the brothers calling the brothers to prayer and, um, and they sounded out in a in momentary kind of way coming and going and then they were immediately followed by the sound of blowflies <laughs> buzzing around and the sound coming and going and, and it's a sense of living in that that sense of um, momentariness, mm-hmm. which is really wonderful. But you could look in, you could look at, you can experience that in a, in its kind of um, largeness. You know, like just the sound of the bell coming, or just the buzz of the blowfly. But if you looked at it in a more fine-grained way, do you know, if you, and you look at the science behind it, is it? That sound of the bell or the sound of the buzz is a lot of little vibrations in a stream coming and going on off, on off, on off, on off, and creating sound waves, do you know, that then come to our ears, do you know, and then those sound vibrations um, resonate with the hair follicles inside, or at least one of mine now anyway, <laughs> you've got two. And then they travel up the auditory nerve to your brain into the auditory cortex. And then something really mysterious happens. We're conscious of it. No one knows how that actually happens. No one knows how that happens. No one can explain how that happens. Science looks like it explains it through neuroscience. It can, it can understand the sound vibrations and going into the ear and traveling up the auditory, cortex, auditory nerve to the auditory cortex. But consciousness? Well, uh, we don't know that one. Not yet. Yet, consciousness is something which is so central to our experience that we can't ignore it. And when we start to not just be caught up in experience in our everyday life, um, but we sit and we're very aware of conscious experience, you know, consciously hearing the sound of the bells or hearing the blowflies. Traditionally, it can give rise to that, that question which brings people to practice. Well, who am I? Who am I? Mm-hmm. Very profound question. Am I this body where the cells we now come and go every, renew themselves every seven years, it's coming and going. So that can't be me. And my thoughts are coming and going all the time. So that can't be me. And my sensory experience is coming and going all the time. There's nothing solid in any of these things. In my body sensations. And um, so many religious traditions, you know, when people have reflected on what is the experience of life, it's understandable, I think very understandable that religions would 
then go, okay, well, all of this material world comes and goes, but I do have this sense of something which is unchanging, right? And when I eliminate all these other things, it's my consciousness which is unchanging. There's something there, not the states of consciousness, they change, but the fact that there is consciousness is a constant which is always there. And then that becomes um, called a soul, do you know? And then where does the soul come from? Well, the soul, is, the soul is connected to God and so on. So we have that kind of religious kind of version of, of understanding our experience emerges. And I think as much as um, a, lot of, a lot of that religion is sort of out of favour in our sort of scientific thinking these days, I think there's something um, extremely valuable in it that we've lost, but I'll get to that a little bit later on. But one of the problems with that approach is, okay, we see I'm not, I'm not this, I'm not that, I'm not this, I'm not that. So I think, well, I must be this soul, I must be this, this consciousness. Um, but then what we do is, through language, we turn it into a thing, becomes a thing. You know? So as soon as we turn it into a thing, um, we've kind of, we think we've got a hold on it, we've pinned it down, but we can't really because it can't be pinned down. Mm-hmm. And uh, philosophers through the years um, have tried to understand what consciousness is and what self is. And of course, we're all probably familiar with, with Descartes, who um, examined this, the nature of existence, and then came up with, I think, therefore I am. Mm-hmm. And so thinking became, you know, because he was a thinker, thinking became the predominant aspect of, of his experience. Now it happens in, in modern neuroscience, where there's a paradigm shift occurring away from thinking and cognition to understanding feeling. So in, in cognitive neuroscience now, the, 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 um, the saying is, I feel, therefore I exist, right? And then we'll get all the funny versions of it, like I party, therefore I exist, you know? <laughs> I boogie, therefore I exist, you know? And all those different versions. And in a sense, all of them are right and all of them are wrong. Mm-hmm because it's trying to pin consciousness down to a particular state of mind or activity. Mm-hmm. But when you examine the nature of consciousness as much as we can, like consciousness being aware of consciousness, it really equates very much with the word emptiness that we use in Buddhism. It's, you can't pin it down, do you know, it's, it's it doesn't have any quality to it, like you can't measure it. Mm-hmm. It's none of those things. It's kind of, and we don't know what it is, it's kind of a mystery, and yet it's a mystery that we're living every moment of our life. Something that is us, something that's intimately us every day of our life. Um, but in the hurly burly of everyday life, we forget about that, and that's where I think there's a tragedy in religion, you know, not being valued as much as what it is these days because it shifts towards materialism and, and people are less 
aware of this, what, what in religion they might call the divine spark, you know, in every human being or any, any being. And um, that, that's been lost, it's been diminished and undervalued in some way. Um, it brings its own problems, but we'll get to that a bit later. <clears throat> it's hard to describe what consciousness is in linear language. So when philosophers study this, they come up with terms, you know, logical things like, I think, therefore I am, whatever. Um, even um, David Hume, the English philosopher, who came to a similar position to, to Zen, um, he said, I've examined my experience, my consciousness, and I can't find anything that I call the self. All I find is memory, thoughts, feelings, sensations that come and go. And um, so it's, it, it sounds like it's similar to to Zen experience, although Alan Watts made a very, very poignant criticism of Hume. He said he, what he's done is turned consciousness into bits and pieces. It's all bits and pieces. Uh, very left hemisphere view of it. Um, an, it's not bits and pieces. It's something which is vast and empty and timeless. And in Zen, we don't use linear language so much, we use metaphors uh, to try and capture the nature of things because metaphors can include paradox, like two truths that come together. One rather than one truth is right, something's right and the other is wrong and opposed to it. So the metaphors we often use for, for consciousness or emptiness um, in Zen or in, in Buddhism is the sky, just the empty sky. So there's the empty sky, but we have <coughs> clouds that move through it, and we have thunderstorms that are very turbulent, you know, that go through it, or we have calm days, or sometimes we have clear skies. But the sky is always the sky. You know, it's unchanging. Yet it is changing with all of these different states going through it. But there is this kind of timeless, spaceless quality to it. And, um, and if you, you think of what the sky is, you know, okay, it looks like there's a, there's a blue canopy up there. But as we know, the sky is, is vast. You know, the universe is vast. It's timeless. And that's the nature of what we describe as emptiness. And that's the, that's the fundamental nature of consciousness. Um, another metaphor that we use in Zen is a mirror. Yeah, a mirror reflects truly, accurately, whatever comes in front of it. You know, flowers come in front of it. You know, a person walks past it. It doesn't judge. That, that mirror doesn't judge, judge whether they're attractive-looking flowers <coughs> or ugly flowers, you know, or whether the person's tall or short or big or small, it just reflects. And, and when the reflection passes, it leaves no trace. There's nothing left, it's just the mirror, which is left back there again. And so they're the, they're the metaphors we use to describe consciousness and emptiness. <coughs> um, but just like with traditional Western religions, 
there's the risk again of creating this division as though, okay, it's this pure consciousness which exists and um, I've got to experience that pure consciousness and stay there and stay in that state. Uh, and that's enlightenment. Mm-hmm. And um, you read all the, the Zen books and they go, no, 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 no. You think you can stay there? No, 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 no. You have to jump off the pole, jump off the, the hundred foot pole into, into life as it is. Uh-huh. It's a trap. And when people are, you know, may experience, have an experience of that timelessness, spaciousness of consciousness, uh, it, can, it has psychological ramifications because it can lead to otherworldliness. Like you just want to dwell in this kind of otherworldly kind of ethereal realm. Um, but it doesn't necessarily come with any common sense in everyday life. It's just kind of, it's just an experience of detachment. Right? And you find in all of the Zen manuals from China right through to Japan, okay, wonderful you've had that experience, move on. Mm-hmm. Otherwise you, you build it up into something that you're actually holding on to in some subtle kind of way. When in fact the nature, like the nature of empty space, you see, you can't grasp it. You can't, you can't hold on to it. It becomes a little palace that you, you um, enclose yourself in. And then, and then there's a stuckness which comes with that. So, when we look at the nature of consciousness, not through the eyes of philosophy and language, but when we experience consciousness through silent meditation, you know, through, through silence, not through words, through direct experience, we can get a clearer understanding of what its nature is like. And its nature is two-dimensional in the sense, the same, same perspective as, as quantum theory. In quantum theory, the theory of light, as you've all probably read, is that they recognise now that light is a wave and a particle. You know, and sometimes you can experience it as a wave and sometimes you can experience as a particle. And just like Zen language, it's paradoxical. They seem like two opposites that just can't exist, but that's the nature of light. Wave particle, wavicle. And that's the nature of, of consciousness. So it's like a wave, it's a stream, and yet we have states of consciousness. You know, when we hear the sound of the bell, we have, it's like particle consciousness, they call it in Buddhism. It's like there's a moment of just experiencing the bell. There's just a moment of pain, there's just a moment of joy, there's just a moment of sadness or anxiety, whatever it might be. So it's got that two-dimensional quality to it. It's like it's changeless, it's timeless, um, has no quality to it. And yet, it does have qualities to it, it has states different states that come and go that are different they're different from other states. Joy is different from sadness, right? Hate is different from love. We experience all those things. So that's what happens more and more as we 
we, we do practice. And like one of the, when we look at our, the world we live in today, um, we, we live in a, in a post-industrial world where science has been so, particularly in the West, where science has been so um, effective and productive that we can manipulate our environment so much better than centuries before with all of our technology and machines and computers and so on. So it looks pretty successful on one level. And what has happened is that science has usurped religion as being the source of the truth, you know. Um, and, um, and when people say they've got a scientific explanation for something, we tend to kind of not, we have scepticism, but we kind of have more of a sense of believing, oh, it must be true because it's scientific. In the same way that years ago, centuries ago, if a priest said, well, it's written in the Bible, let X, Y, Z happen, it must be true, and people believed it. But people have that same naive view of science these days. And the nature of science is that it's led to a way of, of thinking that we're all exposed to, which is very reductionistic and very materialistic and sees itself as kind of opposed to the superstition of religion and everything that it represents. Um, but what is diminished in all of that is the central nature of consciousness that we're, that we're, we're experiencing every moment of our waking lives. It diminishes that. Whereas at least religion it might have its own delusions that go with it. But it's kind of, it gave, where, where that was primary, it gave people a sense of that they, they participate in the divine spark of existence and the mystery of existence. And science tries to demystify it, which has its own value, right? But it diminishes this, this very central aspect that we all experience as human beings, this, this mystery called uh, consciousness. Right? It's, like, it's like it's the elephant in the room all the time that we want to ignore, but it's always there in everything we experience. When we're lost in delusion, in the everyday world, when we're lost in delusion or if a lot of people lost in the delusion of grasping and aversion and confusion, we're not even really aware of that mystery of consciousness which is there all the time. It is there all the time, even when you're grasping and avoiding, you know, or confused. Um, but it's like you're not in touch with it at all. Um, and, um, and it's to the degree to which our lives is run by that grasping and aversion and confusion is the degree that we kind of end up um, living a trivial life. Mm -hmm. It's just kind of wasted on trivial things. You look at pop popular culture. When people are not working, they're either, it's, it's gossip game shows or gadgets. It's about it, you know. Um, the, the quality of life you know, and, and the celebration of life can be um, uh, much deeper than that. So 
when we practice meditation and we practice mindfulness, we're very much seated in the quiet of conscious experience, but it's not something which is separate from the experience world. It's all one, one, one experience. It's kind of like we rest, we rest in that consciousness and we experience the vividness of experience and the, and the changing, impermanent nature of experience as it comes and goes. So we experience the sound of the bells and we experience the blowflies. And what there, while there might be a lot of meaning behind the sound of the bell, it's a, it brings the Christian brothers to prayer, pray, 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 to prayer, to pray to their God. We could look at the science of it, what actually happens. But as a meditator, it's just the sound of the bell. And there's something divine in just the sound of the bell. And when you hear the blowflies, there's something divine in the sound of the bell. It's like, wow, I'm a human being, I'm conscious. Sound of the blowfly. It's better than being dead. <laughs> okay, thank you. <laughs>